So Bob, I have a bunch of questions from patrons. Some of them directed just kind of generally and some of them directed directly to you. So let's ask those questions and answer them. What do you say? I say yes. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor, and I can't tell if I'm working in my pajamas or sleeping in my work clothes. Who are you, Bob? (laughs) I shaved today. Uh, My name's Bob. I'm a therapist in practice in Seattle who shaved today, sitting in the spare room of my house, um, hiding out from a virus, um, and finding that connecting with clients over Zoom is surprisingly intimate and satisfying. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, good. Upper tier patron Jesse, they write, regarding tissues. So Jesse wrote in, because you and I were talking about whether while a client was crying, you would say, hey, I have tissues. I find it really comforting when someone hands me the box of tissue when I'm crying, Mm -hmm. or even just if someone acknowledges that there are tissue. It used to be more of an issue for me. Now I just reach over and get a tissue, but I used to feel so ashamed and weird to be crying that I would kind of freeze up. And it helped when my therapist prompted me that it was okay to have a Kleenex. Mm. So just some feedback on that. Jesse goes also on to say, my therapist works for a clinic that is associated with our local hospital and they are apparently not allowed to use Zoom for appointments, nor are they set up for any other sort of remote appointment. So my current situation is that I can either continue to go to therapy, which feels risky, or to stop going altogether for the undefined amount of time until the pandemic is over, which sets off all of the giant attachment alarm bells in my mind. It's causing me a lot of stress. But regardless of what I decide, if someone at that clinic or at any of the places he has to go to to see patients test positive, he is going to be quarantined. I feel unbelievably anxious at the idea that my access to the person who I think of as the most stable aspect of my life could be cut off at any moment without warning and for an unknown amount of time. Bob, what do you think? Makes sense to me. That would be scary. Yeah. Yeah. And this person is not just like, oh, some therapist that I talk to casually. This has become someone that you're really connected to and really attached to. And your brain will experience it. Your body will experience it as a loss, like a little death. And um, it's important to validate that. It's also important to recognize, okay, we're going to get through it. You know, chances are um, this thing's going to pass and we'll get back. I think holding both at the same time, not using one to invalidate the other, that because I feel awful, um, it is awful, or because it's likely to pass, I shouldn't feel awful. I think we don't want to fall into those extremes, but we want to hold both at the same time. Um, Makes probably the most sense. But of course you feel torqued. I mean, who the fuck wouldn't? Absolutely. Yeah. The whole point of a lot of therapy is for a strong attachment to to be secure and to be safe and to be regular and to be dependable. Mm -hmm. And through that secure, ongoing, regular relationship, one heals from their past relational traumas, abandonment in particular. And when that is threatened, then of course, it's going to make one feel anxious. It's also going to challenge the very foundation of why therapy is helpful. Now, we're in a particular strange situation, I will say. Having said that, 
it wasn't unpredictable. Uh, and similar to how a lot of us are wondering why our governments have not been dedicating the money and the resources and the time to, uh, uh, you know, prepare for these kinds of things. Uh, it's a similar situation where therapists should have known that this was going to happen. And thus, as a field and as, you know, as a office, there should be a contingency plan of what if there's a pandemic and we all have to hole up in our houses or what if a client can't make it to an office? What if a therapist can't make it out of the house because they're sick or something, but they can still do therapy? We need to have a remote telehealth option. And it, one of the silver linings to this pandemic is that it's forcing the government and all therapists and all hospitals to think about how to provide telehealth uh, so um, we can all iron these things out so that um, uh, not only in future pandemics, because it's likely to happen again with one thing or another, but just if, uh, like, like I said, let's say a client was sick and they don't want to come into the office to infect anyone. Well, Zoom or telephone therapy, telehealth, why not do that? Or the therapist is, uh, has a spouse that is sick and they don't want to infect anyone or, um, you know, traffic is terrible. Like, you know, in Seattle, the West Seattle bridge is going to be, uh, is going to close down. So for oh, those really? people, Oh, you didn't know about that? No. Yeah. Like a couple weeks ago. So there's this part of Seattle called West Seattle, which is in a way it's kind of like an Island that only yeah. has one bridge, even though it's not really an Island, but it basically has one bridge or one route in and out of the main route in and out of West Seattle. And during rush hour, it is always just jam packed with cars and it, it's, it's the lifeline to this part of town. And during the pandemic, they, uh, they did some kind of structural analysis and found that this bridge is actually structurally unsound and they shut it down. So with the pandemic and the quarantine, it's not affecting many people yet, but once this is all over, people are, you know, they're going to have to go south down to Burien and then come all the way up. And so um, uh, for some clients, it, it might be impossible for them to actually, if they, you know, say you live in North Seattle and your therapist is in West Seattle, it's going to be like, okay, two hour traffic through downtown and through the West Seattle bridge to get, how about telehealth? So, uh, you know, uh, I get it patron Jesse that it's upsetting to you on the therapeutic level. It's also, it should be upset. You should be upset that us as a industry did not have this ironed out years ago because we've always had the telephone <laughs> or I guess not always because Freud existed before the telephone, but uh, we've had the telephone for many, many years. So this telehealth question has, is not a new one. And uh, it's just ridiculous that in some situations you have like, you know, you have, you have agencies uh, or areas with laws and stuff that don't even allow for this sort of thing. It's just like, it's so, it's just so archaic. Hey, so what do you think of Jesse um, writing the clinic and, or getting in touch with them and pointing out that this is a real ethical problem, not with the threat of some kind of lawsuit or something weird like that, but that actually this clinic is, dropping the ball 
Like they yeah. really are dropping the ball. Yeah, absolutely. And Jesse, if you want me to write that email, I will do so. Nice. Just send me their thing and I'll yell at them. Uh, patron Arnett from New York writes in, I want to ask you uh, if you have any tips for clients dealing with challenges from the rapid switch to telehealth. For in-person sessions, I've struggled with high anxiety, but I made great progress in learning to trust my therapist and we were developing a healing relationship. I understand that social distancing is imperative right now, and I am so grateful to have telehealth during this time. At the same time, abruptly starting telehealth has reset my anxiety to where I started months ago. What are some ways to cope with feeling, with a feeling of lack of closeness during the telehealth sessions? Bob, what do you think? Hmm. Well, talk about it with the therapist. I mean, what an interesting, um, interesting Jesus, what a therapist word. That's worthwhile. Very interesting. Yeah, exactly. It's such a distancing kind of piece of shit word. Um, there's an opportunity here, uh, another piece of shit word, um, to... Uh, learn about something about your anxiety and the way it's manifesting. Um, it's certainly nothing to be afraid of, even though I think we are afraid of anxiety, understandably so. Um, um, it's okay to accept that, yeah, this is weird and your body's going to respond in this way. And um, seems like one of the things, you know what I noticed about insomnia? Insomnia, what I noticed about it is it isn't the not sleeping. It's the fears of not sleeping that seem to get people. Because insomnia actually by itself isn't dangerous. It isn't harmful. It's kind of an annoyance, and I happen to suffer from it fairly regularly. But I noticed that um, a lot of us are afraid of insomnia, and that's the thing that twerks us. It's not the insomnia. It's our thoughts about it that seem to get us. And anyways, so it might be that, uh, let's see, why was I saying that? I had a point. Did you, can you figure out what my point was? Uh, well, Arnett is worried about being, you know, the set, set back right. through to telehealth. Worried about anxiety. Yeah. Right. I wonder if maybe it's the worry about anxiety that's um, worthy of attention yeah. as opposed to the actual experience of anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's unfortunate Arnett that, this has happened, you know, it, some telehealth um, experiences, depending on the therapy and depending on the situation, it can feel less close. Now I will tell you, uh, Arnett, that with my clients that there is a road to returning to that closeness over the phone or over video conference. There, there is a way to make it, it's not automatic that it is a setback. So there might be a way to, uh, quickly return to that space that you got to when you were in person. Um, it, it, it's a matter of, of, I don't know, it's hard for me to put into words, but the general thing I'll say is in this, even in person, when you're sitting in someone's office, you have to extend your soul, if you will. You have to open yourself up, both therapist and client. You got to, you got to enter that zone and, and any good therapist knows that zone. It's like, there's the zone where you're kind of preoccupied with something and you're not really in that zone. And you know, you're listening and you're nodding your head, but you're not really present, present. You're not, you're not really in the zone of, you know what? I feel like I'm right with this person right now. Uh, Counter transference. Yeah. 
And for uh, a client, I imagine that it's also similar of like, there are moments where you, you really extend yourself and you really open yourself up and you, you really try to um, be vulnerable, be open. And with the change to telehealth, I'm guessing, you know, for you, it's just like, okay, I don't really trust this scenario very much. Maybe there's a way to open yourself up. And as Bob always says, just bring it up. Just say, hey, therapist, now that we changed to telehealth, I feel like it's a setback and I'm not feeling as as non-anxious and as secure in our relationship as I did before. Have that conversation. I'm guessing, boom, uh, that's going to accelerate this this process for you. Oh, you're talking about immediacy. Yeah. Nice. Bobby. You have ins- you have ins- <laughs> Bobby like do you you have insomnia, Bob? Yeah. Like uh how bad is it? Cuz I occasionally and more recently have been having insomnia as well. Well, most nights I have insomnia. I wake up anywhere from an hour to several hours um and can't get back to sleep. My actual physical physical experience is that I'm hot inside my body. It's weird. I'm hot inside my body. I don't get sweaty, you know, on my skin, but my skin gets cold. So I want to have a blanket on me because my skin gets cold, but then I get really restless and overheated just inside like my chest and my legs or whatever. And um, I need to get the blanket off. And so I'm kind of in this sort of battle between get warm or stay cool or get warm or stay cool. And um, it's uncomfortable. I usually wake up having done 500 laps of tossing and turning in my bed. And sometimes I just lay there and wait to go back to sleep and sort of daydream or whatever and, or night dream. And sometimes I get up and um, leave the room and go sit down outside in the living room or something. Um, but it's most nights and it's been going on for, I don't know, maybe 11 years. Wow. Yeah. That sounds rough. Yeah. You know, I, I don't really mind it. Um, it's not like I don't have energy during the day and I don't conk out and I don't feel draggy or whatever. So it's a little bit of a nuisance, but, um, last night I watched, uh, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus and you and I talked about that before the podcast today. So there was that. <laughs> yeah. Do you nap at all? Oh yeah. I take a nap every day. Yeah. How long of a nap? Usually short, usually somewhere between 20 and uh, between uh, 10 and 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, a little power nap. Sometimes I don't actually go to sleep and sometimes I just sort of drift into sleep and then wake up fairly immediately. And there's a, maybe a minute or less of a little bit of, you know, head groggy, but then I'm usually pretty sharp and okay. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a break and we get back. I have some questions on Facebook that were directed towards you, Bob. What do you say? Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, do so now. Go to patreon.com. Become a patron of the podcast. That's how we know that you like what we are doing. And it also gives us the ability to take time away from our day jobs and uh, dedicate time to this thing called this podcast. So uh, first question from top fan, Ed, good old Ed. He says, top fan is so on Facebook. I don't know how the algorithm works, but on Facebook, if you, you know, have a page like psychology Seattle does and you have people that 
frequently interact with the page, then you, yeah. then you get this little badge that says top fan. So right. top fan Ed says, Bob, how did you become so awesome? <laughs> well, Ed, maybe you could just call my life and reminder. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand the question, but I find it terribly flattering all the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think people really appreciate, I know people really appreciate your ability to be vulnerable, your intelligence, your caring, your compassion, your denial or your, your compartmentalization of the bullshit that gets in the way of our happiness. How'd you become so awesome in that way? Oh, Ed, I've been a client for longer than I've been a therapist. So there's probably a lot to that. Really good supervision. I've had a lot of supervisors that, <clears throat> pardon me, um, were really kind to me, compassionate, patient, um, supportive. Uh, I think that's made a huge difference. Uh, I've sought a lot of training uh, post-grad school. You know, when we were in grad school, Kirk, uh, based on what I'm learning about the way it works nowadays in the master's program, it's a shitload more vigorous than when we were in. I got in and out of graduate school in six quarters and including my internship. And um, that was quick and dirty. And one of the things that I'm really pleased about is I sought a lot of training after graduate school um, about, you know, if there were things I were interested in. And I happen to live in Seattle where there's a lot of good therapy. So I've had some training experiences here that are invaluable. Um, and uh, a lot of what I'm most grateful for is. Um, and I hope this is true, I think it's um, true a lot more than it used to be, is that as a result of good training and good experience um, in my own personal counseling, that I've learned to be less rigid and more just a regular old human. Um, and um, I, wanna, I, I thought about this, uh, we were doing a podcast earlier, you and me, and um, we were um, talking about a client's experience of um, a bad experience of therapy. And we were talking about how, yeah, they really did get a bad experience of therapy. And I was remembering, um, do you remember Dan Kelleher from school? No, no. He was a professor when we were, when we were students, one of my favorites, he was adjunct. And so, you know, he wasn't there much. And I don't even remember the name of the class that he taught, but he told a story once about working at Western state hospital with autistic kids and um, how they were using this uh, manualized corporal punishment treatment to um, to uh, shape up uh, shape up that's the wrong word to with autistic kids to change their behavior and it was supposed to have better outcomes and I think there actually is some research that says that corporal punishment can be helpful I I, quite frankly, I don't understand it, and it's not something I want to pursue. But anyways, he told this really cool story. He said, you know, I was doing what we were trained to do, which is I was spanking this kid on the butt. It was like a seven- or nine-year-old kid. And he stopped, and he looked at me, and I could see his heart glowing gold in his chest. And I checked, and we were actually bruising we were bruising him. We were hurting him. It wasn't, um, it was actually causing injury, which was not part of the treatment, but it was this moment of eye contact with this child 
where we were two humans um, in connection. And actually that was a lot about what that class was about. And um, boy, it's still moving to me to hear, to think about it. Um, and I think that's what I'm mostly seeking is um, that level of connection. I I feel really blessed because I think a lot of my own personal growth is because I've had this just just amazing opportunity to sit with people who come into my office and want to get down the road in this way or that and um, are open and vulnerable and curious and um, willing to kind of honor me by being uh, allowing me into their worlds. Uh, I think without that, Ed, I'd probably be one of those standard white guy curmudgeons who's yelling at the kids to get out of my driveway. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ed, I, I'll add to that and say that I think that I, because, you know, I've been analyzing Bob for 25 years and um, I <laughs> yeah, think I'll that, uh, but I have never thought about this before. And I, I think that for you and for many of us therapists, really, you have been, uh, you know, you've suffered quite a bit growing up. Mm. And as you emerged into a life where you had control over your life, you know, your 20s and 30s, mm. you found yourself uh, circuitously working your way into psychology and psychotherapy and felt like, you know, you were, you were good at something. And, you know, you're a smart, uh, focused guy and so it was natural that you're going to be good at it. But I think that another part of it was that it was a profession and a world and a mindset and a paradigm that was so different from the way you grew up. Oh, yeah. And, and so nice and helpful and, um, you know, this, this grand world of attachment and safety and expression and listening and connection that was, you know, very uh, soothing to you, um, you know, finding that, that place that felt good. And I think for all of us therapists, it's like that for us. And I think that uh, started you on a path away from the curmudgeon on, you know, yelling at kids to get off of your lawn or driveway. Um, the other thing I'll say is that I know, a little bit about your family growing up, your family of origin mm -hmm. to say that I, you must have had some kind of role in your family that lent itself towards heading you in this direction because your siblings aren't like you, you know, your siblings are like you, but they're not like you in this way. No. And you know, it's not like you're, cause you're like me, you're, you have three siblings and you're, you have similarities. You you're have similar. Third, right? Yeah. I'm third. You're third. Yeah, right? I'm third. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we both have older brother, older sister, right, and a younger Your brother. Sister's the oldest, though, right? No, my sister's second. Oh, really? You're just like me. Yeah. My sister's second too. Yeah, I think there's fewer years, but because I'm like, I'm like six years generally between everybody. Yeah. Where, where your siblings are a little bit more closer in age. Yes, yeah. Um, but anyway, so uh, your siblings are, you know, they came from a similar traumatic and varied background and none of them are really like you in this particular way. Hmm. And 
so I imagined that growing up, you had a role in your family that, that gave you kind of this push along your, along this way of self-reflection, listening, connection, uh, striving for that, not compartmentalizing, not putting things away, not sweeping it under the rug, an aversion to sweeping things under the rug and uh, mm. psychologically mindedness. And so, Ed, I think you can also attribute some of his awesomeness to uh, his role in his family of origin. What do you think about that, Bob? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, David Whalen is a psychologist down in California. He gives these talks about self with therapists. I think I've mentioned this probably more than once on the podcast. I'm fairly certain. He says, I learned all my clinical skills when I was six at the knee of my mother, which of course is no doubt. There was a moment when I was about mm, 16 where I don't know what was upsetting my dad. So my sibs were in the family room and uh, my dad was sitting on the couch and there was a sheet music. My dad used to be, he used to take voice lessons. He was a singer, um, not professionally. It was um, a personal pursuit. And he's sitting on the couch and he's crying. And uh, not something unusual for my dad, though he could be a bit maudlin. Um, and he said to me, I love all my kids the same, but you're the kindest. And I think that had two effects on me. One, it annoyed the shit out of me because it feels like a command performance. And two, it um, uh, feeds the ego because, oh, there's something here that I'm useful or good at. And at the time, um, well, I don't know what time it hasn't been the case. Uh, the idea of being useful or the um, seeing myself as useful has been um, crucial to um, survival. In other words, I'm only good if I'm useful. So I think I'm like David Whalen. I learned all my clinical skills uh, when I was two. Yeah, you've... Did I ever tell you about the very first time I ever had a therapy session? It was the very first time I ever thought I'd become a therapist. Did I ever tell you this story? No. I was 19. I took a gap year after high school and um, drove a truck around Philadelphia delivering... Um, for this company that was a distributor for sheet metal parts. And so it was really a good job. I just drove all over Philadelphia and we sold lockers, like, you know, like in your high school, those lockers. And so I delivered them and other kind of sheet metal products. And then um, uh, I went to school and in school, my second semester, cause they did semesters in Pennsylvania, they had this career development class for those of us who were in um, undergrad program where you didn't know what you wanted to be when you grow up. So they had it in, they called it the division of undergraduate studies, which is to say the kids with no major. And so I took that class because it seemed relevant because I didn't have one. And I was encouraged by my academic advisor. Um, so I took the class and in the class, these career counselor types uh, came in and they're like, well, blah, blah, blah. And this is, you know, career assessment, self stuff. And if anybody wants to come for a personal session to kind of, um, you know, kick around what you want to be when you grow up, you can. And so um, eight weeks into a 15-week semester, I um, showed up at this therapist's office, this career counselor's office. Her name was Paula Ann Pricken. I'll never forget her. And I sat down in her office, and I didn't say a word, and I cried for an hour. And I remember just staring at the bricks that she had that were... Um, uh, part of a bookshelf. You know how you stack bricks up and you put a plank in and you make a bookshelf that way. Mm. I just stared at those bricks for an hour and she didn't say a word. And at the end she said, do you want to come back? 
And I said, yeah. And it's somewhere in the middle of all that, of us not talking and me sitting there, not understanding a damn thing about why I'm so sad, why I'm crying without a fucking word. I thought, I wonder if I could do this, what she's doing, to sit and be still. And that was the first time I thought I'd be a therapist. And actually, very soon after, I switched my major, but I thought I was going to be a kid therapist. Uh, and it turns out I don't really get off on working with kids. That's a terrible way to put it. Uh, <laughs> it's not what I, you know what I mean. Um, that's not my bag. Um, that was it. That was the first time. First you've time never I was in therapy. First time I thought about being a therapist. Yeah, you've never told me that story. That's amazing. Yeah, she was. Uh, she was really. Really lovely, really kind. So you didn't say a single word. Hi, what's your name? That kind of shit. And then 55 minutes and about two minutes before the hour was up, uh, I think there was a gentle reminder that we were just about out of time. And did I want to come back? And, and you were sobbing the whole time. I cried wordlessly for almost an hour. Did you know why you were crying? No, I had no fucking idea why I was crying. I didn't understand any of it. I think I do now, but uh, at the time I didn't understand a damn thing. And I was conscious about it. I'm like, oh God, this is really fucking weird. And you're being self-indulgent. And I don't know. Uh, but I think really what it was is 19 years of agony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Having an opportunity um, to assert itself. <laughs> and yeah. not know for an answer. <laughs> the, the It's a beautiful image and... Should be the first chapter of the book that we write together. Oh. Honestly, it's the um, first chapter of the book I wrote. It, uh, yeah. Oh, right. The the fiction book. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that pops in my head is, and I don't want to, I don't know, be flip about it, but my my brother got in this really bad motorcycle accident the day he. So my <laughs> my older brother he buys this motorcycle, and my parents were not happy with him. And right away they were like, um, you know, you're going to get an accident. You're going to hurt yourself. And my brother's like, ah, oh, calm down. Er, later that night after he bought it. Oh, by the way, <laughs> even backing up further, he parked it in our garage at home. He, he, he might, I don't know, he was 18, 19 or something. And I would have been 11 or 12. I had, I remember hearing from someone that the exhaust pipes were really hot. You know, like, oh, the exhaust pipe on a motorcycle, it's really hot. And I had that flash thought and I'm in the garage by myself looking at this, you know, huge Honda motorcycle. And I impulsively just reached out with my hand and touched the exhaust pipe, even though in my head, you know, it was like there were, there were two parts of that thought. One thought was, Oh yeah, I heard that motorcycle exhaust bites are super fucking hot. The second part of that thought is, therefore you sh you shouldn't touch it. I by the time my hand was just about to touch it, that's when that second part of that thought kicked in. You know, this is part of that twelve-year-old brain that just doesn't have that executive function, and it it just singed all the skin right off of my hand. Oh my god. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was upsetting, <laughs> but anyway, so later, so the, that was the first casualty of that motorcycle. The second one was later that night, uh, my brother was coming home late, probably from Denny's with his friends or something. And he's, he's by himself on a sort of a country road, which is where we grew up in Sammamish and some animal jumps out in front of him and he swerves 
and he runs into a, an embankment on the side of the road and he goes flying down the road and uh, he, he went feet first. And so his leather jacket, uh, you know, went up to his, you know, up above his nipples. And so all the skin on the front of his body just got like shaved off. He had to have pins put into his wrists and his legs. And, but he gets discovered he, and he has a massive concussion. Thank God he had a helmet on mm. some, someone picks him up, takes him to the hospital and he tells a story. He's like that he was fine. He felt fine and he didn't feel in pain until he was in the emergency room and the physicians kind of did their thing. And then they, 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 they walked away from him and that's when he had a panic attack. And I always think of that as a example of how our body kind of knows. And so your body knew for the first 19 years of my life, I cannot feel this feeling yet. It's not safe. Uh, I'm still in survival mode. I'm still on that road wandering around with, blood everywhere. If I break down and have a panic attack, like it'll threaten my very survival. Yeah. Right. Um, by the time he gets to the hospital, he, he's in safe hands. He can flop He can just sort of flop at that point. His body's like, okay, now it's time to have the emotion. Right. 19 years or however long it was for you of, of, of wandering the street with wounds piling up and, and nowhere to hide or to be safe. Um, to flop at that point would be to make things worse. And then you go to this therapy office and for the very first time, it's just like, okay, you're safe. This is an appropriate space for it. The therapist is a professional, you, you know, let it out. This is the time. And, and then your body was just like, blah, right? Indeed. That's exactly an accurate way to talk about it. Yeah. That's amazing. That is truly amazing. I kind of wish I had a first session like that. <laughs> my, my first sessions were with a psychoanalytic therapist who sat literally on the other side of a desk across the room. Oh my God. Yeah. And I sat in like a, like a shitty chair against the wall next to the door. Oh and, um, God. I'm, I mean, he, he was fine, but <clears throat> he was just classic psychoanalytic. Behind <laughs> a desk. Wow. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, psychoanalysis, they get this blank screen trip, you know, like classic psychoanalysis, you know, Freud, after a particularly good interpretation he'd have with a patient would have a celebratory cigar in session. Right. Yeah. The argument can be made that Freud was the worst Freudian therapist. (laughs) I don't know. You know, I would want to have therapy with him. I think he's probably a really good guy. Yeah. I mean, when you actually read the transcripts and hear him talk when he's not trying to teach his students or propose a model, he was very humanistic and very relationship oriented. Right. But he was trying to systemize something and make it medical. And so it, it, I think that confused him in terms of what to focus on in terms of what he should teach people. And then the later generations of classic psychoanalysts, which dominated the field for the first half of our profession, you know, took it as dogma and, and um, maybe went a little too far with it. it w- now uh, there's a good number of psychoanalysts today who are some of the most humanistic relational people, but there's obviously a lot of psychoanalytic people who are not. 
You think Yellum considers himself psychoanalytic? Who? Irvin Yellum. So I asked him about that when I got a chance to interview him. I know. Lucky you. And he didn't, he, he was, he, he was integrative. He, he appreciated everything. Okay. And I, I don't think he considered himself to be any particular theory. He definitely wasn't a CBT guy. Yeah. Right. So I think he, I think he thinks he, you know, he dabbles in psychodynamic theory and I think he definitely is firmly within humanistic. I mean, he's considered to be a humanistic therapist. Um, But when I asked him about that, I I think he, he gave a pretty, he gave an answer that, that, you and I might give where it's just like, yeah, I mean, all the theories are great (laughs) kind of a thing. Um, Top fan Lyndon writes, Bob, what makes you belly laugh? (laughs) Well, that question seems to um, belly laugh, huh? Bathroom humor. (laughs) Um, Irreverence. Definitely. What makes me belly laugh? Hmm. Sometimes really good sex. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, to, to add to that list was sexual liberation moments. Uh huh. That's a good way to put it. Uh, I belly laugh with my clients fairly frequently. I um, I'm kind of a loud laugher, and I imagine that the waiting room in my office—that's a frequent thing that my that the people out there would hear—is me and my client laughing about stuff. Yeah. I- <laughs> to elaborate on that, I don't know if this is what you're talking about, but when you observe other people being real in a way that lends itself to humor yeah, and you, you laugh quite a bit, you know, yeah. it's, it's a, like someone's like, you know, talking seriously and then they'll say, you know, for me, you know, I'll be, I'll be talking about something seriously and then I'll say something like, but who the fuck knows? I mean, I'm just an idiot like anyone else. Like, you know, that turn of, of events yeah. for you where it's like, well, what the fuck? You know, we're all just a bunch of idiots trying to, you know, and, and that'll make you belly up. And, you know, yeah. So listeners out there, Top Fan Linden in particular, uh, Bob has one of the loudest laughs, most um, infectious <laughs> laughs that, that ever existed. Um, I have been friends with him for 25 years and I've, I've also been filming. I'm, I'm the, the documentarian of my life. And you so, are. so, you know, 99% of the video footage of Bob is, is from me. And I suppose I'm guessing. No, that's know. definitely true. Yeah. And going back to 25 years ago and, uh, so one of the things you notice when you review some of these videos is just how loud Bob's laugh is. Like one of the things that um, is frequently being filmed is we have this Quanchanimous party, which is a, a Kwanzaa Hanukkah Christmas party in, in December. And it's a white elephant party. And, and it's one of the very original, like I, you know, now white elephant is pretty common, but uh, starting in the nineties, it, it was really quite um unique and these people take their white elephant gifts very seriously they don't just they don't just go to archie mcphee's and pick up something silly you know these are gifts that you you know you scour like 25 different garage sales Mm -hmm. looking for these gems but anyway and uh there's often a lot of funny moments and and bob is is just you know um just laughing hysterically and and everyone's right there with them um so 
a lot of things make Bob belly. Do, do TV shows or movies make you belly laugh or is it only real life? No, no. Sometimes if it's good, um, you know, it's hard to say. Like um, Wedding Crashers is on about every 20 minutes. Have you noticed this? Oh, well, no. if you don't watch TV, you haven't noticed this. But it's on about every 20 minutes you can find Wedding Crashers being rerun. Um, I probably watch it maybe half the time that it's on, even though I've seen it, oh, God, 35, 50 times, something like that. I just, yeah. Colleen, I think I drive Colleen nuts because I'll watch everything more than once. Um, um, I, I don't know. I just sort of enjoy that. And uh, I, that sort of shit, that fucking made me belly laugh. It probably doesn't make me belly laugh now because, you know, you hear the joke a bunch of times, so I'll enjoy it. But yeah, if it's good comedy or, you know, yes. So the answer is yes, absolutely. Sometimes TV shows or films, they'll make me laugh. Yeah, when Vince Vaughn and uh, uh, Wilson, what's his name? Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson are in the house with the with the witch family, and it's the next day, and he's like, you know, he's traumatized by by tum- by tummy sticks the night before, um, and he's just like, just like, you know, they're having that conversation, and he's like, and you know, Owen Wilson is like come on, man. You know, I think this is a big deal to you. Like, I, you know, I think I really like this woman. Yeah. And Vince Vaughn is like, okay. So, <laughs> and he's like piling all that, all that food on. And he's like, and he's like, um, <laughs> daddy's going to get his food on. And then, then we're going to, we're going to have a conversation about this. You know, like, it's just so. <laughs> I'm going to choose not to eat with you. <laughs> I'm going to sit over here because I can't stand you right now. We're gonna, but after daddy gets his food on, we're going to come back. <laughs> oh God. Just comedic genius. Yeah. God. When you and I used to run around uh, back in the day and then we'd go back to your house and cook a pizza and uh, put Tabasco sauce on it, put it in the oven. Um, and then we'd just talk about what happened that night. We used to laugh a lot. <laughs> yeah. God. Uh, last question here for you, Bob Bellis, uh, good, good, uh, patron Bellis says, Bob, what is the funniest story with Kirk and you? Oh, wow. Yeah. That uh, you could, that you can mention on the I podcast. Mention. Well, you know, um, it probably would be something I could think of, but I'm on the spot now. Let's see the funniest story with Kirk and me. We might be disappointing that patron cause <laughs> yeah. We get that question from time to time. People are like, oh, you know, you guys have. So maybe in the off hours, we can like we try to think of podcast friendly stories. All right, people, uh, please take care of yourself out there. Value yourself. Mm. When you find those safe moments, you know, let it out. Because mm. why should people do that, Bob? You deserve it. 